Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Imagine growing up in a tightly bound community of no more than 60 people, many of whom work from dawn to dusk, subjected to the unimaginable indignities and torture of their time and place. Why? because they were African-Americans born into slavery in the United States in the first half of the 19th century. They hoped and dreamed of freedom, freedom to an unknown place, freedom, a guide for those who fled their bondage and risked their lives. Freedom for some was found in the seaport town of New Bedford, Massachusetts, where escaped former slaves were welcomed. New Bedford was the richest city in the world in the 1850s, a city run by Quakers and other abolitionists who created a safe haven for black people from the South. The 1,000-plus men and women who found refuge from their bondage were more than enough to hire the newcomers as they arrived. Often, the men found work on whaling ships that ventured forth around the world from the New Bedford Harbor. In this series about the Underground Railroad and the fourth in our series about New Bedford, we explore the lives of freedom-seeking ex-slaves who made the journey to the southeast corner of Massachusetts. We continue our visit with National Park Ranger Mark Mello, Part of Ranger Mello's work is that of a tour guide interpreting the history and stories of pre-Civil War New Bedford. His interpretations focus on the bravery and dedication of most all of the New Bedford residents at that time. I joined Mark Mello's walking tour about the Underground Railroad's connection to New Bedford in the Old Town section of New Bedford on September 2nd, 2016. This edition of Radio Curious begins with Ranger Mello's story of Nathan and Polly Johnson, free black people who lived and worked in New Bedford, he as a pharmacist and she as a confectionery. Nathan and Polly Johnson were two free African-Americans who lived in this city. Nathan was a pharmacist, what we would consider a pharmacist today. Uh, Polly was a confectionery. She made sweets. Let me tell you, her sweets were the talk of this town. If you could not afford Polly Johnson's sweets, you were talked down upon as if you could not afford a big screen TV today. You were considered lower class if you couldn't afford her sweets. But think about that. Polly had two things going against her in the 1800s. Not only was she an African American, she was a woman. And neither of those two groups in the 1800s were expected to make much of themselves. She goes on to own three properties in the city. Nathan up and leaves her, goes out to the California gold rush, only to return several years later, begs Polly to let him back into the house, Guess where she puts him? In the basement. Well, I guess he had what he had coming at him. But her story 
is truly a remarkable one. Considering the speed bumps that she had to scale, the hurdles she had to jump to achieve what she did. But we usually talk about this building for another reason. It's this guy. Anybody recognize this gentleman? Very good, sir. Frederick Douglass, or as he was formerly known as, Frederick Bailey. Bailey is a slave down in the Carolinas. In Maryland, excuse me. He's down in Maryland. Decides to run away one day. Makes his way up the eastern seaboard. Finds himself in Newport, Rhode Island. It is there that two wealthy Quaker merchants from this city will go and tell him to come back to New Bedford. We have a place for you to stay. And that place will be the Nathan and Polly Johnson house. Now as he makes this journey, he marries a young woman by the name of Anna Murray. After marrying Anna, he decides to change his last name to Johnson. He knows his owner knows him by the last name Bailey. If I can change my name, it'll be that much more difficult for him to find me. He gets here to the city and he stays in Mr. and Mrs. Johnson's house. Mr. Johnson doesn't like that. He says there are far too many African Americans in this city with the last name Johnson. You need to switch your name. Mr. Johnson is reading a book in which the main character's name is Douglas. The name sticks. That name that we know him by, Frederick Douglass, he got in this very city. His first home that he ever owned as a free person was located right over there, right behind the parking garage. No longer stands, unfortunately. And it is from this city which he will give one of his first public speeches, which he will become well known for as he grew older in age. His first will be over in Nantucket, one of his early ones will be right here in New Bedford, right up the street at Liberty Hall, which will be our next stop. So I want to direct your attention diagonally across the intersection to the now Bay Coast Bank. At one time, this building right here stood there, Liberty Hall, one of the early meeting houses in the city. It will be donated as a place of forum where people could go and discuss the issues of abolitionism and slavery. Early prominent speakers there, Frederick Douglass, as I already mentioned. Anybody ever heard of William Lloyd Garrison? Pretty prominent man of the early 1800s. And a young and not yet president, Abraham Lincoln, will all speak right there across the street. That's the one that gets me, my friends. Abraham Lincoln was there. That's pretty cool. Um, not talking about abolitionism, though. He is plugging for the election of Zachary Taylor to the presidency of the United States. So he's not talking about slavery or any moral wrongs or any of that stuff. He's trying to get Zachary Taylor elected. Good politician, right? What more could you ask for? But this building was very important because of that bell that was up in the bell tower. And if you look at the building, a piece of that original building still remains. You look at that greenish tinged plaque right there on the wall facing us. And on the bottom of it, there's a little out, ju out jutting protrusion on it. That's an original piece of the bell, which is up in the bell tower at Liberty Hall. That bell, when it rang, was a signal to every fugitive slave in this city that they were in danger and that they needed to get into hiding. So whenever that bell rang, you knew if you were a fugitive, 
I better hide. These troubles coming. 1850s roll around. The Fugitive Slave Law gets passed. It makes everything we've been talking about official. Now if you aid a fugitive, you are breaking federal law. You're not just breaking local laws, you are breaking federal law should you aid a fugitive slave. It gives U.S. Marshals the authority to go in the legal jurisdiction to take fugitives and send them back into slavery. One U.S. Marshal up in Boston hears about this. And he, in not-so-nice words, is basically going to say, I'm going to go down to that rotten city of New Bedford and take those good-for-nothing slaves and send them back to where they belong. He wasn't quite so nice, use your imagination. People up in Boston hear this. They send word down to the people in New Bedford. He's coming. Beware. One night, an unidentified ship sails into the harbor. The people here fear that that U.S. Marshal was on the ship, because the ship came from Boston. A man by the name of Rodney French runs up into the bell tower, begins to wildly ring the bell, alerting every single fugitive in this city that they are in trouble. Now, go to find out, the U.S. Marshal wasn't on the ship. He never had the kahunas, so to speak, to come to this city. He was all talk and no action. But Rodney French didn't know that, did he, when he went up into that bell tower? He knew what the law was. He knew what he was doing. But to him, helping those people was more important than any law that Congress had passed. Criminal. His acts were criminal. Was he a hero? Again, you can all decide that on your own. This city, though, thought of him as a hero. He goes on to be mayor of this city. And if you make your way down the Fort Tabor, Fort Rodman, way down on Clark's Point, I suggest that if you've never been down there, some nice, beautiful walks right out, open to Buzzards Bay. It's really quite a nice area. You'll either drive down East Rodney French Boulevard or West Rodney French Boulevard. His name is still immortalized in the city. That is what the people of the city thought of him. Our story takes a final turn, though. In April of 1861, Confederate guns opened fire in Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, beginning what we now call the American Civil War. Bloodiest war in American history. Over 700,000 casualties. It's more than all other American wars combined. Hanging in the balance, though, was not only the fate of a nation, but also the fate of thousands of fugitives all across the North, and millions of slaves all across the South. What will become of these people? And at our last stop, back down at the 54th Park, we'll close with their story. This is the second part of our series on the Underground Railroad in New Bedford, Massachusetts. National Park Ranger Mark Mello is our guest as he leads a walking tour in the Old Town section of New Bedford. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. So we're here in 54th Regiment Memorial Park, dedicated to those men who served in 54th Massachusetts. But before we talk about that, we have to first talk about the Civil War a little bit and how do we get to that point. Important to remember that in the early years of the Civil War, 
It's not really a war about slavery to President Lincoln. You look at a lot of his early writings, a lot of his early speeches, he doesn't really mention slavery. He's very adamant that it's about preserving the Union. However, that takes a little bit of a turn in January of 1863, as he signs the Emancipation Proclamation into law. Now, contrary to common belief, the Emancipation Proclamation does not free the slaves. Basically, it doesn't free a single slave when it's written. What it's going to do is, basically it is an executive order, an early executive order. So we think that executive orders are something new, but they're not. They've been around for a long time. And basically, Lincoln realizes that as President of the United States, he does not have the authority to take slaves away from uh, loyal citizens to the United States. So how does he get around that? Well, he basically says that if you're in rebellion against the United States of America, and we move through your area with the Union Army, now we can free the slaves that are in that area. And it's important to keep in mind that not all slaveholding areas were in rebellion against the country. There's four border states, Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and uh, Delaware. All four of them are slaveholding states which have stayed loyal to the Union. So these states, you know, the loyal citizens, Lincoln cannot take the slaves away from those people because no president has the authority to take property away from individuals. He does the same with the many counties all throughout the South that have decided to secede from the Confederacy to rejoin the Union. Most uh, obvious is West Virginia, the western counties of Virginia which decided to secede from the Confederacy to rejoin the Union. So all of those places he excludes from this document. The freeing power of the Emancipation Proclamation though will be as the Union Army moves into areas that are in rebellion against the country now, the Union Army, the Northern Army, has authority to free those slaves along the way. But it does something else that's very important for our story. In it, there is a clause which basically says that African Americans will be allowed to serve in the United States military. Um, one of the first governors to hop on this idea is the governor of Massachusetts, and he's going to call for the formation of the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment. Now it's important to note that African Americans serving in the U.S. military is nothing new. It's been a long tradition. They've served in the American Revolution, they served in the War of 1812, they served even in the Mexican-American War, but never in large numbers. Um, for the first time with the Emancipation Proclamation and what happens after it with these new formation of these all African American units, African Americans will serve in large numbers and will serve in units comprised only of African Americans. That is with the exception of the officer corps. They will have all white officers. By the standards of the 1800s, it's deemed that African Americans are not fit to lead themselves in the battle, so they will be led by an all white officer corps. But aside from that, they will be comprised only of African Americans. 54th Massachusetts Regiment will have a recruiting office here in the city, right here behind the Customs House, on the grass area is where the building once stood and some 60 or so African-American men will come to this area and will enlist to serve mostly in Company C of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. One of the most famous of them is Sergeant William Carney. Carney, we don't know a lot about his history or his background, but we do believe that he was probably a fugitive slave. 
He comes here and he enlists, and him and the rest of the members of Company C make their way up to Boston, where they do some training for a couple months, and then they make the journey down to Charleston, South Carolina. It's there where they will be facing Fort Wagner, a little fort in the harbor down there. Um, the commander of the unit, Colonel Robert Gold Shaw, he's a white officer in command of the 54th Massachusetts. When the orders are given that they have to attack the fort, basically the commanding officer leaves it up to his subordinates as to who will lead the attack in. Shaw will decide to go first. He knows it's a fool's errand, he knows it's going to be suicidal, but he wants to prove a point. He wants to prove that African Americans can fight just as good as the white soldiers. 54th goes in first and they suffer heavy, heavy casualties in their attack. Now the most important position in a Civil War unit was that of the color bearer or the flag bearer. That person's lone job is to carry the American flag in the battle. Should that man get shot, the man standing next to him is expected to drop his gun, drop his weapon, and pick up that flag. That's what that flag meant to those soldiers so long ago. That was the value that those soldiers placed on the American flag. The color bearer of the 54th Massachusetts will get shot down. When the next men to pick up the flag, the final man to pick up the flag, is Sergeant Carney. Carney charges up the walls of the fort, suffers at least four wounds. Two of them are serious, but he will never let go of that flag. As the order is given to retreat, he stumbles his way back to Union lines, still grasping that American flag in his hands. A white soldier will come up to him and offer to carry the flag back for him, and you'll say no to him. As it is claimed, he said, this flag will only be held by a soldier of the 54th Massachusetts. For his actions that day, Sergeant Carney will become the first African-American man to warrant the awarding of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Not the first man to receive it, but his actions are the first taken to warrant the awarding of the Medal of Honor. You'll receive it some 30 years after the war, and you'll receive it in the mail. Now I always get the question whether or not that was because he was an African-American, to which I respond, yes and no. The fact he got it in the mail had nothing to do with the color of his skin, it's just how it was done in the 1800s. doesn't seem quite right to me and you in the modern world where you know you get the nice rose garden ceremony with the President of the United States himself awarding you the medal, but back then you would have received it from your postmaster. Kind of ironic, but that's just how it happened, whether you were white or black. However, the fact that he got it 30 years after the war very much had to do with the color of his skin. You can go back and look at congressional records in which it is debated whether or not an African-American man is capable of winning the Medal of Honor. But nonetheless, the Kearney forces will win, and Kearney will become the first African-American man to warrant the awarding of the Medal of Honor, and he is from this very city. Civil War ends in 1865, the 13th Amendment gets passed, and with that, so ends our story, right? No more slavery, no more need for an underground railroad. So everybody can now go home because the tour's over. But does the story really end there? I don't think it's any hint or any secret to anybody who turns on the nightly news 
Whether you think of it as justified or not, that's your prerogative. But the fact that we still discuss these things and the fact that these issues are still brought up means that there are still some underlying problems there. But to me, each one of these stories has something a little bit deeper. It transcends the issues of racism or slavery. It boils down to one word. Courage. Courage to stand up for what you think is right. You know, whether it was the young, the people who welcomed Joseph Smith into the city down by the waterfront at our first stop, the young girls who helped Mary over on Johnny Cake Hill, the Quaker merchants who went into the customs house, Rodney French who went up the bell tower, or Sergeant Carney who charged up the walls of the fort. They all had the courage to stand up for what they thought was right. No matter what the consequences of those actions may be. You know, how many times in our own daily lives are we faced with those difficult decisions? Where what we believe in, what we hold to be right and wrong, is challenged. Whether it be at school, in, at work, in the family. When the popular and easy thing to do isn't always the right thing to do. How often do each one of us have that courage to stand up for what we hold to be the right thing to do. It's one of those things where stories over 150 years old can still be applicable to us today. How many times have we been confronted with these situations? And how many times do we have the courage to stand up for what's right? If somebody today came to you and was in need of your help, would you have the courage to help them no matter what the ramifications of that action may be? Mark Mello, thank you so much for providing these stories about New Bedford, Massachusetts for Radio Curious. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming. And I'd like to ask you some questions about you. Absolutely. One of them is, um, is there a eureka or an aha moment that occurred in your life that gave you new direction, new inspiration, caused you to create a different life path? There kind of is. And mine, I guess you could say, is a little bit earlier than most people's. Um, I have a passion and a love for the American Civil War. It's really the thing that I love. Um, I love the story of whaling, certainly, and I love the story of the Underground Railroad, but if it boils down to one thing, uh, really, the Civil War is it. And when I was three years old, probably not the best parenting decision in the world, but my parents let me watch the movie Gettysburg. And from that moment on, I have been obsessed with the American Civil War. As far as the point at one thing that really got me into history and the field of history and wanting to become involved in the National Park Service um, and wherever I go in the future, really, that is the moment that kind of was the eureka moment, you could say. Are you from uh, this part of Massachusetts? I am. I am from Freetown, which is not too far away from here. So I've always kind of been in this area. But ironically, even though I grew up here, I never knew that there was a national park here which tends to be a problem. Um, for a lot of people, we fail to recognize what's in our own backyard. But a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to start volunteering here. And at the start of the summer, I actually got this position. So 
I'm very fortunate. What would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? You know, it's a good question. Um, park service has always interested me. I mean, I would love to be a park ranger down in Gettysburg or something like that. Um, but also, uh, college professor idea has always uh, been very alluring to me. And to be able to share what I know with people who want to further their education in history. So as long as I get to talk about history, I think I'll be happy because this is really what I love to do. And finally, Mark Mello, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Um, depending on what you're interested in in specific, um, I'm a park ranger, so deal with me because I can never just offer one suggestion uh, because that's not what we're told to do. We always have to give you a couple of ideas. Um, if you're interested in the whaling industry, two very good books. Uh, one of them's Leviathan. Um, it's a very good book, uh, all about the whaling industry, not only in this area, but all across the country and the world. Basically focuses on the United States, though. And another very good one is a first-person account of a man who went out on the Charles W. Morgan, which left from the city. Uh, it's called Whale Hunt. And that is right out of the person's mouth who lived it. So that's a very good book as well. Um, Underground Railroad, I mean where to begin on books to talk about that. One that pops to my mind is Fugitives Gibraltar, um, which kind of deals with this city and how it was, in a way, a Gibraltar uh, for many of those fugitive slaves who were running away on the Underground Railroad. Well, again, Mark Mello, thank you so much for uh, serendipitously uh, sharing this, your stories with Radio Curious. Absolutely. Thank you. This was the second of our two-part series about the safe haven for formerly enslaved African Americans who made their way to New Bedford, Massachusetts in the 1850s. Our guest is National Park Ranger Mark Mello, who works at the New Bedford National Historical Park in the Old Town section of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Our New Bedford series also includes two visits with Michael Dyer, the senior historian at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. These interviews with Michael Dyer may be found on our website. The books Mark Mello recommends are Fugitives Gibraltar, Escaping Slaves and Abolitionism in New Bedford, Massachusetts by Catherine Grover, Whale Hunt by Nelson Cole Haley, and Leviathan by Philip Hoare, that's H-O-A-R-E. This program was recorded on September 2nd, 2016, in the Old Town section of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 
6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.